welcome to Millennium Global's Q4 Macro Outlook, a podcast series where we discuss our macro thoughts and currency views going into the next quarter um, of the year. My name is Eve Danbury and I'm a portfolio analyst here at Millennium Global on the discretionary investment team. And I'm joined today by Piers Sashdeva. Welcome, Pia. Nice to be here. Thanks, Eve. Our lead economist and strategist to go through her thoughts over the next quarter. Um, so just quickly, where do we stand at the moment? Um, inflation remains at the highs across most global economies. And for most part, it's yet to have shown any signs of, of slowing down materially. At the same time, growth is continuing to slow under the weight of persistently higher prices. Um, and central banks find themselves in a predicament. They're caught between controlling inflation versus monitoring the risk to growth. Um, but one thing that is changing now this quarter is growing concerns over financial stability, not least exacerbated by the recent moves that we've seen in the UK, particularly in the gilt markets. And actually now we are starting to see, as you'll go on to explain, the potential for some G10 central banks to start slowing the pace of hikes, um, creating what is usually a favourable environment for FX, uh, which is one of differentiation. Um, so with that in mind, Pia, going into the final quarter of this year, inflation, growth and monetary policy, um, within those themes, what are the main economic considerations you are thinking about as potential currency drivers? I think the first thing to say is that at the moment, G10, FX in particular, when we monitor macro drivers of FX, uh, shows us that equity risk is at the moment the key driver of, of FX. So broadly then it comes down to taking a view on equities and from a top-down point of view, we have a negative view on equities and that stems from the valuation side, which is a view on inflation and interest rates, that inflation is likely to be sticky till the end of the year. Uh, We have had some repricing in the Fed's terminal rate. It's looking better, um, but there's still ultimately a risk to the upside, we think. And then um, top-down view on earnings is still negative because Uh, The Fed is having to slow growth in order to engineer bringing that inflation down. Um, So that's broadly how we're thinking about FX from an equity point of view and very much a top-down point of view. Uh, I think maybe just to dig into that a bit further, views on inflation first. On the inflation side, headline inflation in the US has come down a bit over the last quarter, but core inflation has broadly moved sideways. So not great for the Fed. Um, there, there has been a reassessment of where the terminal rate needs to go from the latest summer of economic projections, but also the market has priced a higher terminal rate now at 5%. But when we look within core inflation, it's not only moved sideways, but the share of services inflation within that has risen. Um, so you have the core services part and then you have the core, core goods part. And that's a problem because the services element is, first, it's more domestic. Secondly, it's more sticky, uh, almost by definition. So those prices are not changed as much as other prices. And then finally, um, service inflation is more correlated to wage growth. Um, And so to some extent, wage growth is a driver of service inflation because uh, services companies have a share of wages in their cost base is high. So the Fed have to engineer a slowing labour market in order to bring that down. 
So even though core inflation has moved sideways, the fact that service inflation is now a bigger issue than before means the Fed has to do more. Um, you know, in terms of our, our view going forward, we still expect inflation to come down from here in the US, um, mainly driven by energy prices. So the oil price itself should roughly take four percentage points off inflation in the next six months. So that's quite a dramatic impact. Uh, and then there's some signs in the core goods side as well that we could get some disinflation. Um, so that's an improvement in global supply chains, but also uh, high inventory, high inventories in some of the goods firms, and so they can cut prices there. So there's some good news on that side, um, but the sticky part of inflation, that services part, um, which you know, out of that there's a, there's a high share that is shelter prices, we still see that as being quite sticky to the end of the year, and that's going to be important in keeping the Fed hawkish to the end of the year at least. Okay, um, and with that view on inflation, and as you say, services inflation being particularly sticky, what's then your view on growth as a, as a product of that? Yeah, well, I think the, you know, the Fed will be focused on core inflation, but for the consumer and for households, headline inflation does matter. Um, you know, energy prices coming down is a great windfall for the US consumer. Um, when we look at growth, you know, domestic growth is clearly slowing. Um, that's both from consumption, but also from investment. Investment is weaker, both in capex, but also residential investment. That makes sense. You know, the housing sector is very interest rate sensitive. So expect that to continue as interest rates move higher. And then on the consumption side, um, we expect consumption to slow, but the, this extra windfall that the US consumer is going to get will be important in effectively avoiding a recession. Also, the labour market is still quite strong, so that employment growth should also help keep consumption fairly modest, but still below what's regarded as potential in the US, which is important for the Fed because that will allow them to open up some spare capacity. Okay. And then finally, just before we get more into specific currency views, just consolidating everything you've said, um, services inflation remaining sticky, particularly in the US, um, there has become a sense that the economy will have to slow down um, in order for prices to adjust lower. Um, so focusing on what has been still a very strong labour market in the US, um, how are you actually thinking about the Fed uh, and what they're going to do over the next quarter? So you're, you're right in that the labour market's been very strong. We are seeing some initial signs of the labour market slowing. That's firstly in job openings, which captures labour demand, uh, but also in employment growth is slowing when we look at the payrolls report as well. But ultimately, the level of tightness in the labour market is too strong for the Fed to, to stop. Um, so you know, when we look at the inflation picture and the labour market picture at the moment, uh, it's I'm reasonably confident that the Fed will do a 75 basis point hike. And then looking forward, they should be able to slow the pace of tightening from December. Uh, firstly, as the labour market slows, um, but also as the Fed is now then in genuinely sort of restrictive policy setting, uh, and that should allow them to assess the impact of previous rate hikes. Um, and it's something that we saw in the minutes that you know, they are aware that a lot of the effect of the tightening hasn't fed through yet. Um, and I think, you know, going back to what I said about energy prices, it's easy for inflation to go from 4% to sorry, from, from levels today to 4% or so, but it's going to be very difficult for them to get to from 4 to 2. Mm. 
Uh, and I think at that stage, the, the committee members are going to have more of a discussion around the mandate itself and the trade-offs between inflation and the labour market. And at that stage, I think risks around financial stability and the lags of monetary policy mean that the Fed allow themselves to, to pull off a pace of tightening and actually stop until they can cut rates as they become confident that inflation is going to two. So I think they see monetary policy as being a cumulative thing, that if they hold rates stable above what they regard as being neutral levels, so they call it restrictive monetary policy, that that is a tight setting, uh, rather than just continually be being more hawkish from here and having to do 75s up to sort of in infinity. We just don't see that being the case. Okay. I mean, so ultimately the Fed is, it remains the dominant driver um, of markets, but how, how are you thinking about other central banks, particularly in G10? Yeah, so the, uh, the interest rate divergence story with the Fed has been a really important one this year in FX, and that's particularly the case with Dollar Asia. So we think about the central banks uh, in G10 and EM that have more easy stances. So first of all, the Bank of Japan um, that have kept yield curve control on hold or have a neutral policy setting, mm. and China that has an easier policy setting as well, or an easing bias, I think, from the PBOC. Um, we still see scope for that broadly to continue from here. Uh, so that's important, but at the same time, see less juice left. You know, as I said, we don't think the Fed will be significantly more hawkish from here. And in December, they should you know, reduce the pace of tightening. But more broadly in G10, I see scope for some of the wider G10 central banks to have dovish pivots before the Fed. And broadly, in terms of the economic structure, it should be economies that have relatively low inflation relatively low wage growth, mm. and also have very high interest rate sensitive economies via housing sectors or high uh, mortgage debt as a share of GDP. And those economies that stand out, and I think central banks that we've heard a bit from in a dovish sense have been firstly the RBA, mm -hmm. and secondly, the S&B, so Australia and Switzerland. Uh, then the natural question is who could be next? I think potentially Canada. Um, you know, it's slightly different in the Canada's had reasonably high inflation, the signs that inflation is peaking there. Um, but the difference between, I think, Bank of Canada, and particularly the Fed, has been that they've done more front loading. You know, we had a 100 basis point hike from them and then a 75. Uh, but Canada is quite interest rate sensitive when it comes to its housing market. So I think the Bank of Canada is potentially next. So I think we can agree um, that there really is plenty to be thinking about from an economic standpoint. Um, and I think then the question is just how we translate that into FX views, which is obviously uh, the trickier part. Um, specifically on the dollar, uh, I think we can both agree that across all valuation metrics, the dollar is expensive. But as you say, in the near term, the Fed is likely to continue hiking um, in large increments as well. Um, and then at the same time, the overall risk environment does remain vulnerable um, and the war is still ongoing in Ukraine, which obviously continues to affect sentiment. How are you thinking about the dollar specifically? Um, and is it really all upside from here still? Yeah, I mean, the dollar still is my favourite currency in the G10 space. <laughs> um, I think it will continue to dominate. And okay. I think the way that you phrased that question was interesting because... Yeah, you've identified 
the reasons why the dollar has got here. You know, the first is interest rate divergence. The second is the war, which was a terms, massive terms of trade shock that hindered Europe and parts of Asia as well. We, Asia is broadly a large energy importer. And then finally, the risk environment. So, mm. um, you know, those things, those three drivers are ones that we ultimately don't see going away. Um, you know, I, I do think there's less juice left in the interest rate divergence side of things. The war's still ongoing. Clearly, it's an uncertain outlook, but it is ongoing. There's now a growth divergence between the US and Europe uh, and potentially Asia as well as gl global trade is slowing quite quickly. Um, and so broadly, the, when we think about the drivers of you know, how, we, how the dollar became strong, it's difficult to argue against those and we still see strength from here. And I think the risk axis is an important one because we're now in a phase of monetary policy, particularly for the Fed, where we're in genuinely restrictive territory. And so hawkishness from here or additional rate hikes from here will have to be priced into growth. And that's more aggressive than you know, moving rates mm -hmm. from very accommodative to neutral. And that's likely to weigh on the risk um, axis more. So from an FX point of view, I prefer the, a positive dollar view versus the risk axis of FX in G10. So that's Australia, Canada, even um, the UK, sterling, so your, your high beta currencies. And that's partly because um, in Asia, we're, we're seeing some FX intervention. So from both the PBOC and the Bank of Japan, mm -hmm. really leaning against that um, depreciation of those currencies. And then in Europe, and I hadn't touched on uh, our central banking views there, um, but the ECB are effectively still very much behind the curve. You know, they're, they're, they've announced a lot of tightening to come, but they haven't actually done that tightening. And so that should keep them hawkish purely because they need to really start their rate hiking cycle and go, go through it. They're still really at the beginning of that. And the Bank of England are also in a slightly um, individual, idiosyncratic situation where they're having to enforce monetary policy credibility. Mm. So we see a big hike from them as well. So the, the interest rate story is less clear that there's a divergence in Europe. And so the preference is, uh, you know, positive dollar views, but I think the risk axis is the, is the next driver. Interesting. So just bringing up what you said there on the yen, actually, um, in terms of intervention, uh, and arguably going from talking about the most expensive currency to the cheapest currency in G10. Yeah. Um, we know the Bank of Japan is set on maintaining its dovish stance uh, for the foreseeable, um, but they aren't completely immune to inflation. And ultimately, US rates have been the biggest driver of the yen thus far, but that could change. What's your view on the yen going into the next quarter? So firstly, on the Bank of Japan, um, you know, inflation has been rising and it's at relatively high levels by Japanese standards, low compared to the rest of Japan, but um, relatively high for Japan. Um, that's mainly cost push rather than demand pull. Um, we've seen a lot of yen weakness and so that's feeding through but ultimately services inflation or the domestic measure is still too low for the bank of japan to really consider uh, normalizing policy so we're just not there yet and i think it's obvious when we read through the bank of japan minutes that the um the boj as a committee need to be convinced that this is a long-term game changer for Japan. And so, you know, it's difficult to see more than a tweak to interest rate guidance. I think there's a good 
Are there be a good reason for them to change interest rate guidance that they've had through COVID? So they had a guidance that interest rates would remain the same, if not lower. I think that's actually out of date now. It was linked to the state of COVID in Japan. Um, so that's a potential you know, tweak there, but ultimately it's not normalization. And so the yen, I think, is still a view on US rates. Yeah. And as I said, I think that there's less to go for, but risks are still to the upside on the US. So on the US rate side. So it leaves our dollar yen view, um, or dollar yen moving higher and a negative view on the yen. Having said that, and I'm sure you're you know, well aware on the portfolio management side, um, the BOJ are more likely to, to intervene. Yeah. Um, and so it makes it a difficult macro view to express in portfolios. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> moving over to Europe, um, Euro has been caught in the middle. Um, we've had an increase in rate pricing for the ECB, bolstered by inflation and energy prices and the war. But at the same time, the war is ongoing. Um, so even though you've had this interest rate move, um, and that has been supported to the euro, particularly on a trade-weighted basis, um, the risks still remain for Europe uh, in terms of um, growth uh, to the downside. So. A mix of different factors. Um, how, how are you thinking about the euro going into, into Q4? So, I mean, to bring it back to Q3 of what drove the euro, I mean, we had a major terms of trade shock with natural gas prices moving higher. Now that uh, affects FX very directly. Yeah. And so I think we've moved from that direct impact of the shock to the euro as a currency via... Uh, current account and and that that direct hit from higher prices to thinking about what it means for the economy and policy. Um, I think it's important that Europe has been able to successfully raise its gas storage and also that fiscal and the governments have come in to effectively backstop growth to some extent. So they're taking the burden, right? So this terms of trade shock affects the economy. And then the question is, who has that burden? Who, who pays the price? And the government has stepped in to take some of that. And that's important because I think it, it means that Europe's likely to avoid a deep recession. And therefore, in the backdrop of high inflation and a still very tight labour market, um, the ECB can normalise policy and take rates into restrictive territory, which I think the governing council has now really decided to do. Um, so yeah, slightly more nuanced on the interest rate side of things when it comes to comparing the ECB with the Fed and risks around that, but uh, still negative euro versus the dollar, um, mainly because of a divergence between US and European growth. Okay. Um, because even though gas, you know, the gas storage being so high reduces the risk of a severe recession, Europe will still have to bear some cost and the consumer faces higher, higher inflation and the industrial users of energy uh, will likely to uh, have, well, we're seeing some demand destruction there as well. So uh, we still see um, European growth being weighed down and that should create some divergence between the US and Europe. And then on the war, I mean, it's very uncertain in terms of the outlook, yeah. but Ultimately, we have an assumption in the view that the war is likely to get worse before it gets better. Speaking of governments and, and taking the brunt of the energy crisis a bit closer to home, um, Sterling 
I mean, it needs no introduction, but apart from giving us a lot of sleepless nights, um, how are you thinking about the UK here and now? And given that we've just had the most turnaround uh, from the new chancellor on the mini budget, um, and then taking a step back, how are you thinking about UK growth in the more medium term as well? I mean, firstly, the replacement of the chancellor and the huge U-turn that we've seen, mm. it's a broadly positive thing. You know, we've, we've seen the currency rally back up to pre-mini budget levels. Yeah. Uh, I think it shows, it's, it's a symptom of the UK having enough checks and balances in place in order for the UK to avoid an EM-style balance of payments type crisis. So in that way, we should have a bit more confidence that there's some institutional credibility there. Um, but I think now the currency is likely to be focused on the growth outlook like it has been in previous quarters, you know, before sterling became quite idiosyncratic. And in that respect, you know, we've seen a severe tightening in financial conditions, mortgage rates are higher, the Bank of England are now likely to step up the rate hiking cycle, although I think they'll likely disappoint market expectations in the next couple of meetings. Um, the, the outlook for growth is very poor, and you know, when I look at economic forecasters and the consensus numbers, the UK is meant to be the worst performing economy growth-wise next year, actually contracting on an annual basis next year. So the, the growth outlook is exceptionally poor. And um, you know, then, then the question is, when will the market maybe begin to focus on this? Uh, and I think it's likely to be when the OBR published their forecasts and say, you know, what this is what the fiscal tightening now means for UK growth. And also the Bank of England, when they refresh their forecasts as well, uh, with a new assumption in for higher interest rates. Uh, a messy situation <laughs> of that. Um, just staying in Europe, uh, the Swiss franc, after what had been a very strong Q3 for the Swiss franc um, on the back of the S&B rate hike that we had, uh, we've actually now seen quite a turnaround um, and a turnaround in, in rhetoric from them as well. Um, appear to be slightly less hawkish than we first thought of. Um, What's your take on the franc uh, and the SMB going forward from here? Yeah, I think the, as you say, I think the main change in the dynamic for the Swiss franc is the interest rate side of things. Mm. Um, the inflation projections that the SMB published in the last meeting uh, was slightly lower than I was expecting. Yeah, broadly in the third quarter, we were seeing a more aggressive SMB relative to ECB. I think that's ultimately flipped for a few reasons. So um, I think firstly, the level of inflation, yeah, the level of inflation in Switzerland is still quite low. The second is the currency movement. So the Swiss franc has done a lot of work for the SMB themselves. Um, and I think it, there was an implicit acknowledgement of that, and that's been quite different to the ECB um, that, has, that faced until relatively recently a weaker euro. And then I think another factor that is quite important, I think not as appreciated than it should be is financial stability. So it goes back to sort of comments I was making on the housing sector that the SMB view, particularly from a financial stability point of view, view the housing market as being overvalued um, by around 30% or so. And so they're aware of the risks 
uh, around housing, particularly when moving from negative interest rates to positive rates quite quickly. Mm. Uh, and they have a banking system that is very highly exposed to property as well. So I think there's some financial stability concerns that, that there from them. Uh, and I think it goes back to the point of dovish pivots from these other central banks that yeah. are not the Fed. And ultimately, when you see risks around whether, whether it's financial stability or the labor market, you don't want to take those risks unless you're certain that you need to. And the Fed will likely be the last one standing ultimately. Um, so I think it's the interest rate divergence story that's changed for the Swiss franc. Okay. Um, I mean, we've spoken a lot on G10. Um, so just finally, wanted to pick your brain on EM a little bit um, and specifically CNH. I think in China, we can both argue that, you know, the story is still very weak. But from your perspective, what's actually going to be the main drag on, on China's growth outlook going into the next quarter of this year? So on the, the growth outlook, I mean, there's still, two, there's still two major drags. The first is zero COVID policy hampering consumption. Uh, we haven't seen a change to that policy in the party congress. Uh, that was something that we had expected anyway. And then the second is the property sector, you know, huge drag from from property likely to come. I don't think there's been enough in terms of policy response to put a floor under the property sector. And again, going back to financial stability, and you, know, you said that it's becoming a larger theme. It's mm. a theme for China as well. Um, you know, I was struck by the latest IMF financial stability report. You know, we've had the IMF meetings as well. And um, a risk that is highlighted from them is China property and the risks that there's contagion from the property sector into the banking sector. Now, ultimately, that's a risk that should be contained to China, but it's still a huge risk, uh, particularly in the absence of um, any additional policy support from here. So expect, I expect those two factors to still ultimately drag on growth. There's some offset from infrastructure spending from the government, so that's partly offsetting the, on the investment side. Um, the big picture for, for CNH, it's part of the interest rate divergence story for dollar Asia. So ultimately, inflation and growth should be weak enough to keep the PBOC at least on hold, if not an easing bias. And so that interest rate divergence story just continues. The, the final factor that is slightly different going into this quarter is the current account dynamics. Um, so China's seen very strong current account from import compression. So imports have been very weak, exports have been relatively strong. Um, whereas that's now changing, export growth is slowing and uh, imports are unlikely to get weaker from here. So that's a slightly different dynamic which should weigh on the current account and therefore you know, weigh on the currency as well. Um, but ultimately, you know, all those drivers are currency negative for China. So still maintaining that negative view. Thank you, Pierre. Um, it's certainly not a predictable macro environment uh, to be working in. Um, and from a market dynamic perspective, um, volatility in both FX and fixed income and equities has continued uh, to remain at elevated levels. Um, and with that, what we've seen is a continuation of traditional correlations um, continuing to break down. Um, and of course, that's interesting, but it, it does make for a challenging environment um, to trade FX in, which we've both seen. From a positioning and technical standpoint, um, dollar longs remain pretty extreme in the market at the moment. 
Um, and on the technicals, we've seen most dollar pairs actually reaching new extremes, some all-time lows. Um, so case in point is sterling and cable, um, which last month traded through all-time new lows. Um, and then commodity currencies as well. The Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar, both versus the US dollar, um, have traded to new cycle lows. So we, we recognize that we are at extreme levels, um, but as it stands, the fundamentals do still point to that, that dollar strength in the near term, as, as we've discussed. Um, I think the key for us going forward is that there is differentiation still within FX. Um, and as you mentioned, some central banks are nearing the end of their tightening cycles, which is definitely a, a significant um, change from the last quarter. And also, you know, there is the potential for continued divergence um, in terms of the growth stories as well, um, with the likes of some of the Asia uh, currencies, as you mentioned, um, still having quite a weak growth backdrop um, versus some of the European ones. So I think to emphasize the likelihood is that there's still going to be further differentiation to come. And this is very much something for investors to think about. Um, and this is where opportunities are created. Um, so yeah, thank you again for joining me today. Um, and providing an overview of the next quarter. Um, for anyone who's interested in diving into more of the topics that we've discussed today, don't hesitate to reach out. And we'd very much welcome a conversation with you. So thank you for tuning in today and for our Q4 Macro Outlook. And if you'd like to get in touch, please do so. Mm -hmm.